A quick content note here before we begin this episode of What Am I Rolling? This episode's RPG, Field Guide to Memory, is, at its heart, a solo journaling game and deals with some mature themes. These themes include death, loss and grief, betrayal, cryptid and animal attacks, the breakdown of relationships, and there are some mentions of alcohol as well. Be kind to and responsible with yourself when listening, and do take a break or skip an episode should you need to. Thanks, and stay safe, my friends. Hello, and welcome to What Am I Rolling? A twice-monthly RPG one-shot podcast. Hosted by me, Fiona. This is part three of our Field Guide to Memory one-shot, so make sure you listen to the first part before continuing on with this episode. To briefly recap, my mentor, the beloved and illustrious cryptid researcher, Dr. Elizabeth Lee, has been officially declared dead five years after she went missing in the field. She spent 20 years studying the pronged horned desert rat, Dipotamus antelocapra, an antlered rat that has not yet been confirmed to exist, hence a cryptid. As Amy Parker, her closest mentee, I have been unravelling the narrative of my mentor's life and relationships through her research and her community, through postcards, through the professor's field notes, through strange scraps and all the physical detritus that accumulates from being alive. It is now up to me to carry on her legacy. In week one, despite my best letter-writing efforts, the Institute for Theoretical Evolutions refused to release Dr. Lee's research to the public. However, a mysterious friend, one Melanie Sparrow, junior archivist at the Institute, has been in touch with some promising leads and scans. An additional note in her letter told me that she was part of a collective of fellow cryptid enthusiasts and allies, and that their goals to preserve Dr. Lee's legacy were aligned with my own. Most importantly, however, my friend instructed that I shouldn't trust the Institute. In week two, I was contacted by Olivia Chin, Vice President of the Keystone Elementary School Cryptid Appreciation Club. She wrote to me asking if we could work collaboratively in order to get Dr. Lee's research released to the public. After much soul searching and anger at the latest press release from the Institute, I started to reach out to other contacts to help with the Little Citizen Science Club's call to action to share anything and everything related to Dr. Lee and her work. Field Guide to Memory is a collaborative and narrative journaling game where you, the player, create a physical artifact of play that is completely unique to your individual experience. For 20 consecutive days, the player will receive between one to two journaling instructions, prompts and images of ephemera relating to Dr. Lee. Through writing, drawing and mapping out your character's experiences, you will explore the ecosystem of Dr. Elizabeth Lee's remarkable yet complicated life as you explore your own feelings and your role in her carefully constructed universe. A quick spoiler warning here though, if you're planning on playing Field Guide to Memory and don't wish to be spoiled, stop listening now and come back when you're ready. One last thing before we begin, naturally there are times in this one shot where the players and myself, well mostly myself, get the rules wrong or forget something plot-wise. 
For example, there are a lot of scientific language and Latin names for animals in this one, which I definitely get wrong. I know, before you start, it should be Antilocapra, not Ancelocapra. Just thought I'd put that out there now. Whilst we always endeavour to stick to the rules wherever possible, at the end of the day, we all make mistakes. And what matters most is that everyone enjoys themselves. So, with all that out of the way, let's get back to Field Guide to Memory. The Lovers Day 11 Birdie Your laptop sounds like someone stuck it in an oven for an hour and it is still trying to recover. The whir of your cooling fan filters out sounds from outside your window as you sift through image after image of submissions to the Little Citizen Scientist Club's repository of Dr. Lee-related ephemera. Some of it clearly pertains to her research, but most of it is a jumble of fan letters, personal correspondence, notes under autographs in end pages of various wildlife fact books she helped write, and sometimes a few recipes in Dr. Lee's handwriting, jotted on the back of stained index cards. By now, you've gotten used to the copies of letters sent from Dr. Lee's lovers. There were many. Then there is correspondence. You gave Olivia permission to share your PO box number, an address with an abbreviated version of your name, and now every time you check on it, the door looks strained against the bumper crop of mail it holds inside. Oh gosh, there's a question. Question, what is the species of bird whose call most serves as a substitute for eagle calls in movies and popular media? Answer the question using a device to search online, and once you think you have the answer, write the bird's scientific name along with its common name in the field notes section of your journal. Look over the ephemera below. Which note mentions the bird? Locate it before you move on to the next part. Okay, so I genuinely thought it was an eagle. Let me have a look-see. So according to treehugger.com, oh, it's a hawk, I think. A red-tailed hawk sounds more familiar. Okay, I'm going to play that. Yeah, oh, wow. Buteo gemesensis, the red-tailed hawk. I did not know that. Wow. Gosh, the more you know, really, isn't it? So we've got some... Ephemera. Uh, first one is a scanned note and recipe in Dr. Lee's handwriting for campfire rice. The writing is almost impossible to read. I can read the note quite well. It says, hello, dear one. To be honest, I rarely use recipes when I cook, but I will do my best. If it is a mess, just call me and I will make some for you. You can consider it an offering on the altar of the scientific method. So good to run into you and catch up. Best Elizabeth. On the back of an envelope is campfire, campfire fried rice. And in brackets, you will need a campfire, and that is a must. Her writing is so scriggly. Gosh. Includes notes such as, this is when the wildlife will find you. They love the smell of fat on a fire. Get whoever you're camping with to play guard. You're doing something too important to be interrupted. And there's a little bit of wax, like a wax seal of a... A heart or something? 
in gold on the back of the envelope. Then there's a letter from Olivia Chin. Dear Dr Lee, I'm writing to update you on the wide and varied activities of the Keystone Elementary Cryptid Appreciation Club, a branch of the Little Citizen Science Club. Thank you so much for your kind letter you wrote congratulating us on the success of our recent birding day. This month we inducted two new members. Philip Kim is interested in frogs and is starting a project to protect the tadpole population in a local drain pipe. Jessica Garcia does not believe in cryptids. In brackets, it's okay. But has five rabbits and is interested in exploring the use of sustainably harvested rabbit fluff to make yarn. In brackets, the rabbits are fine, just brushed. My mom, in brackets, our adult chaperone, has also agreed to take the club out to eat at restaurants that can tell us that they treat their meat and vegetable sources, in brackets, and their employees ethically and sustainably. I am doing a lot of research into where our food comes from and am learning a lot about farm worker labour movements. It will be the topic of my next Little Citizen Science Club presentation. I want to present a recent paper of yours at our next meeting, but I couldn't find anything from after 2010. Do you have any upcoming work that I can tell the club about? We look forward to hearing from you, and we are really excited about your visit later this year. Sincerely, Olivia Chin. The next one is a letter from Glasgow. Glasgow, UK, I'm guessing, because it's a... says uh, Great George Street. It's written, handwritten on like a um, paper that's got like honeycombs all over it in a beautiful sort of purple pen. My wandering love. I hardly know where to send this letter or whether I shall at all. It feels most important to write it, to have written it, to put these questions to you in ink on paper and consider them finally asked. Where are you? Where have you gone? Are you alive or dead? I need you to tell me. Because I need to tell the bees. They've dimmed for want of news of you. Their songs are muted. Their dancings slowed. I need no smoke to soften their attention these days. The wide sweep of their flight is an elegy. And their honey tastes of weeping. If you had died and I do not tell them, I fear they will leave me as you have. But what can I say? That you've gone missing? Impossible. That was always our loft, wasn't it? You'd go and we'd miss you. This is not an accusation, of course, but appreciation, the silvered shape our pleasure took. You were never anywhere but where you intended to be, and that was fine. You'd return like the sun out of season, and to be surprised by you was joy. So long as I write to you, I cannot believe you dead. So long as you aren't dead, I needn't draw black cloth over the hives. So long as I don't put the hives in mourning, then I must write to you. But perhaps I have it wrong. You remember our evenings at the tea house, mapping mythologies between sips of spicy tea. We spoke of bees bridging the lands of the living and dead, and wondered whether they had roots amongst the ground-nesting Andrena cineraria. Well, perhaps my bees have seen you in an underworld already, and are trying to tell me so, to tell me to lay out the funeral feast, give them their dew in biscuits and wine before shifting the hives leeward. But I do not think so. I think I can read my bees better than that. 
and I think I know your desire for privacy, my dear. You fear eyes needling your back, empty mouths devouring all of your work into silence. Listen, please. You know how to reach me. Only tell the bees, any bees, where you are. Send your friends to gnaw on the roots of our flowers. Whisper coordinates to the rain. I can keep a secret. Or not even that, say only, I live. And let me taste sweetness again. Yours always, Sathia. P.S. I've enclosed a message from them. Hold it up to the sun or cast it on the earth. They love you so very much. And she's included a postcard with bees dancing and a picture of the sun. My dear Birdie, Maine has its charms, but the state pales in comparison to any that contain you within its borders. Why are you not here with me? What does the Dipotamus Ancelocapra have that I do not? Shall I grow a tail to show off for you? Shall I grow horns also to lure you into my den with your notes and your nets? Elizabeth, I am bored. I thought my research in this fellowship would be enough to sustain my interest, but the world has less lustre when you are not beside me. All these esteemed men bore me. These conferences bore me. The endless expanse of pristine snow bores me. Dinners post-lecture feel like an elaborate, saltless ritual to put me to sleep. And no one has ever eaten anything spicier than a northern white bean. Brackets. Not pinto. Too brown. And even my tongue is bored. But that goes without saying, since, again, perpetually, I point out that you are not here. Michael Stinton will not leave me alone. I know you remember him, because I was delighted when you said you were jealous he got to see me in my new tailored winter coat before you. You, jealous of someone, for me. In any event, he is the only other person in my age cohort, so I have to just be nice to him so that I can at least spend some time remembering what an unweathered face looks like. For what it's worth, he is absolutely fascinated by your work and considers switching from evolutionary biology to theoretical evolutionary biology simply on the basis of your articles alone. So there, I am your evangelist. You can't say I never did anything for you. As payment, please take the first train out of Yuba country that jumps continent to the anemic, cold northeast. Neither that falconer or her hawks deserve your attention when I am waiting for you. Yours always. Your very beautiful, very brilliant, very... Again, I say, bored, beloved. Your red-tailed hawk with perfect pitch. The only proper perch for my birdie. Hannah. An excerpt from N. Chen's Therapy Journal, 2013. I'm probably thinking too hard about this, but... The school counsellor said writing down my feelings would help me process them, so that's what I'm doing. If it makes her stop looking at me like that when she watches a plate fall to the ground in slow motion, I'll write whatever she wants. It's been a week since they found Elliot's body. He was in a drainage ditch just south of the farm. No one will ever tell me anything else. Not even the detectives. I'm just waiting for my legs to heal up so I can go home. But Dr. Heller wants to keep me under observation longer. He doesn't want to tell me why. I overheard him talking to my dad about unusual bone growths. 
If I run my hand along my shins, I can feel little knobs like ridges on antlers. I thought they were pocket marks or fractures at first, but they are raised. They're a little tender, so I try not to touch them that much. I've been reading a lot to pass the time here. Mostly stuff I found online, some pirated research papers uploaded to the r slash cryptozoology. A lot of them are by Dr. Elizabeth Lee. That's not a huge surprise since she is the cryptozoologist. Kind of like the One Ring, if it wrote about the differences in diet across regional subspecies of jackalope, instead of driving people insane. I saw a recording of her TED talk and I know I want to be a cryptozoologist just like her. I'm going to write my college admissions essay about Dr. Lee. The essay is about personal heroes. I don't know if Dad's going to let me go to college now. It's not my fault. No one's going to believe me, but it wasn't. It was Elliot's idea to drive out to the desert that night. I think he just wanted to make out under the stars. I didn't want to. I'd been trying to break up for a couple of weeks, but words wouldn't stick, and I ended up lying in the back of Elliot's pickup, staring past his shoulders at the moon. I don't know what attacked us. It was person-shaped, almost, but it wasn't a person. Its limbs were long and spindly, with too many joints. It had thick, tangled horns that branched out across its head like a halo of blackberry brambler. When it laughed at us, its mouth was full of them, too. Elliot's mom thinks I killed him. At least Dad sort of believes me. He thinks it was a coyote attack because of the teeth marks on my tibias. They show up on the x-rays, but I saw that thing and it wasn't a coyote. It saw me too. It smiled at me. If somebody knows what that creature was, it's Dr. Lee. I keep thinking I'm going to find an answer in these research papers. All I've got is this headache that won't go away and the constant pressure right above my eyebrows. Four hard lumps I've started rubbing where my chest gets too tight. I hope my legs heal soon. I really want to get out of this hospital bed. I hate these lights, and I miss the moon. There's a restlessness in me that won't go away. Like a mushroom beginning to push its way through the red dirt after the first summer monsoon. Like the horns of a jackalope budding just under the skin. If you read this diary, Miss Martinez, don't snitch on me. As soon as I get discharged, I'm driving back out to the desert. Then I'm going for a long, long run. There are answers waiting for me out there, hiding amongst the foliage. If I close my eyes and trace my fingers above my shin, I can feel them already, deep within my bones. Dear friends, my daughter and I are huge fans. She made this discovery of a new cryptid-like pronged horn hand turkey. Thank you, Dr. Lee. Love, Carly. And it's the picture, so it's Viv, age 8, Kari, age 38. There is one letter you pause on. Something about it tugs on your intuition. A short note is attached to the front of it. Thank you for opening your postbox to submissions relating to Dr Lee's research. This is a letter I wrote to her once when we were involved, but never sent. I hope it is helpful in your efforts to continue the spirit of her work. Hannah Diaz. As you skim over her letter... You remember Dr. Lee often mentioning a bird call getting substituted for eagle calls in movies. She said, Eagles are the goofiest sounding birds of prey you will ever hear. But wouldn't it be a fascinating portrayal to allow such an undignified noise happen at climactic moments in an action sequence? I'd pay extra. 
looking over the letter and referring back to it as needed, what does your intuition tell you are important pieces of information in your search for confirmation of the Dipotamus and Coelocapra's existence? Note them down in your field notes section of your journal. Okay, so um, not much, I've got to be honest. I think the only thing we have is this talk of um, where Elizabeth is now. According to this letter, it's in Yuba country, which I'm guessing is a desert place or like a way it's described as. So let me, Yuba? Yuba County is what it is, not Yuba country. My bad. That's in California. So currently Dr. Lee is in California trying to find the Ancelocapra there. Falconer and her hawks. So I, yeah, she did talk about the prey of the Dipotamus Ancelocapra being hawks and stuff. So she's probably seeing... Someone, oh, there was, I can't remember which day it was. She spoke to someone about it. I think it was a zoo person. Oh, goodness, which one was it? It was really early on. I can't remember now. There was somebody earlier on that talked about it. She was interviewing them. I think it was that person anyway. She talked to someone from Nevada who was a casino person, um, a gambler. It was a guy, and then it was the other person, I think. I think, I'm not going to look back and check because I can't remember. Okay. Once you have done, reflect on the letter. Think about a time in your life when you were enamoured of someone. Answer the following questions in the diary section of your journal. Keep your answers short, a few words at most. It's not always good to linger on these memories. Okay, so the first question is, what was the name of your beloved? Peter. Name was Peter. How did you two meet? At university, uh, in Freshers' Week, when we were trying out different things. Peter wasn't a scientist, he was a writer and was studying English. What about the first sparked your attention? Peter, he had a love of books, always had a book in his hand, was always reading, and he'd read anything and be able to talk about it in such a way that it was passionate, thoughtful and considerate. Even if it was a trashy book, he would not be snobby about it. He would read anything and everything. So that love of reading really blew me away. What about them kindled that spark into a flame? When I was studying more about cryptids and stuff, he gave me a present. He gave me a book on poetry, folklore poetry, discussing various sightings of cryptids in Wales, in Northwest, all over the UK. And it was incredibly thoughtful and detailed. And I just thought, wow, he really, he really knows me. What a thoughtful gift. What did they do for you that convinced you that this was the person you'd grow old with? They came to my presentation, one of my earliest presentations. Like, I hadn't really told anyone about it. I sort of mentioned it offhand. And he organised everyone in our little friendship group to go and support from the back. And, you know, surprise party afterwards and celebrating on my first successful conference presentation. Took pictures, recorded it all. It was amazing. Which of the two of you betrayed the other? Um. Well, obviously, it's never as clear-cut as it 
as it seems. It wasn't just one person, it was both of us. What was the form of your betrayal? So, unbeknownst to me, Peter was suffering a lot with um, mental health issues and more stuff at home than I realised. And I tried to help, but not knowing how to help, I made it worse. A lot worse. It was a huge breakdown in communication, essentially. And I just remember coming back to the flat one day after seeing some friends in town and he was there with two cups of tea, told me to sit down and said he couldn't do it anymore. He couldn't lie to me because he doesn't love me. And it completely sideswiped me. My whole world just came crashing down. I didn't realise there was a bit of a problem. I'd, I thought I'd fixed it and I hadn't. And it's that sort of thing when it's back and forth. Him not wanting to communicate that he was struggling. Me thinking I fixed it but made it a lot worse. And I begged him to stay. And he left. So it wasn't a betrayal. That's too harsh a word, it was just a breakdown. And thinking back on it, reflecting back on it, it hurt so much. It was awful. Reflecting back on it, it was not a, a good relationship. And we'd both been lying to ourselves. And I'm in a much happier place now. I've got my work, doing what I love. I never spoke to Peter again. Day 12. Cryptofax. The premier guide for cryptids around the world. For cryptid fans and friends. A note from Hannah Diaz, reading, Thank you for your reply to my earlier letter. I am glad to find others who are fond of Birdie. I hope the included notes with this letter help you in your search for evidence of the Dipotamus ancillocapra, and I will continue to look through my office and personal spaces to see if anything else might further your results. Signed, HD. And then in the notes um, is a series of haiku from Hannah Diaz. Uh, Dr. Lee has annotated the paper... Some in direct relation to the poem, but others are miscellaneous notes on the pronged horned desert rat. Six haiku for my birdie, in brackets, about her, about her weird rat. Dipotamus ancillocapra has too many syllables to be a haiku. This desert rodent burrowing into soft soil burrow into me. You devour me like a raptor devours that kangaroo rat. It is very small to have your heart already. I have a horn too. I want to hoard you, keep you in a private cache, like your rat hoards seeds. Squeak, squeakity squeak, I am a terrible poet. But so is the rat. Annoyingly, 
Like, it's very beautifully written, like, as an image. But I can't read it. <laughs> My eyesight's are really bad. There's a photograph that's put in this, um, of Dr Elizabeth Lee's desk. There is, a, like, a picture of some antlers. And then underneath it, it says, Artist's mock-up of desert rat pronghorns. They read, They are neither true horns nor true antlers. Annual shed, in brackets like deer. The horn sheaf is what is commonly considered the horn. The skulls have an interior bone structure that the bone sheaf covers. The sheaf is like human fingernails. Ugh, gross. And then there is a page labelled CryptoFacts, Premier Guide to Cryptids Around the World. Uh, and there's a, a really bad drawing of, an, of a Dipodobus ancillocapra at the top. And the text says, Popularised by the work and research of Dr Elizabeth Lee, the pronged horned desert rat, in brackets, Dipotamus ancillocapra, is a desert-dwelling species adapted to hot, dry and arid environments. They can survive without drinking any water, gaining all of its water from the, the seed-based diet and occasionally insects. Oh, well. It has many predators, like other small desert creatures. Owls, bobcats, snakes and coyotes are all predators of our small friend. The pronged horned desert rat spends most of its day sleeping underground. It comes out to feed at night, when the desert is much cooler. Discovered relatives include the desert kangaroo rat, the California kangaroo rat, and other desert-dwelling kangaroo rats. Pronged horned desert rats have mostly a similar range to a desert kangaroo rat, in brackets, arid low deserts, although due to their pronged horns, their burrows require more time to construct and travel through. The search for them has also taken place in high deserts and other deserts. With the facts you are able to pull from Hannah Diaz's haiku on Dr. Lee's annotations and the CryptoFacts wildlife binder page and any information you have gleaned from days prior, put together a crypto fact sheet for the pronged horn desert rat in the field notes section of your journal. So looking back at the haiku, so I've read the haiku aloud. Uh, Dr. Lee's written some other notes here. Oh, she's given Hannah some copy edits for the poem. Most reports are in Nevada or New Mexico, but I believe their range includes the Californian desert as well. But the Californian kangaroo rat has been declining as well. Specificity, darling. Dipotamus A shares detailed networks with several species, and in particular there is a secondary evidence of possible oh, possible half-based cryptid that hunts much like the harassed hawk in social parks, but tracks I found were something... A new form of griffin, possibly. God, I can't read her handwriting at all. Opportunistic f forager. They will eat whatever they can find. After my own heart, truly. You are a beautiful poet, and you wound me. They must shed their antlers in the winter. Why haven't we found any? In brackets, fragility, too often preyed upon. Weasels, coyotes and snakes... Their burrows are fairly deep, more similar to the, the banner-tailed kangaroo rat. In harsh desert heat, they will usually leave only at night. Okay, so we've got a few notes here. So, we're going to create this cryptid fact sheet. Um, first question is, what is the scientific name? Well, it's the word I've been able to pronounce now after 12 days of trying. It is Dipotamus ancillocapra. That said, though, I definitely am not able to spell it off the top of my head. So I'll just check that, and then I'll write that down. Okay, second bit. Common name. Okay, well, that is simply the pronged-horned desert rat. 
Interesting though, because it goes from pronged horned to prong horn. That changes all the time in these notes. Habitat and biome. I am not, what is a biome? God, you can tell I'm not a scientist. Okay, so a biome is a collection of plants or animals that have common characteristics for the environment they exist in. They are distinct biological communities that are formed in response to sharing a physical climate. Okay, so the habitat and biome, so they like living in hot areas, hot, dry deserts, essentially. And they often live underground. And they are nighttime, nocturnal animals, that's the word. And they can live without water, so it's almost like they're camels in a way. I didn't know you could get water from just a seed-based only diet. That's, that's brand new to me. Okay, next question is geographic range. We know this from reports in those accounts earlier on um, in the first week. And we've got Nevada and New Mexico. I know somewhere else. I mean, California is the one they've put on here. But I guess, again, there's, those are the places that have very dry deserts places it is the west coast of america that's where we're that's where everything is uh, arizona would have been the other one of course discovered relatives um discovered relatives uh it's basically any other kind of kangaroo rat right okay main predator now we know from previous entries that the hawk and there was like a falcon here, so the hawk is definitely one. So we've got hawks, owls, snakes, weasels, bobcats, and coyotes. Yeah, loads of predators. All right, distinctive traits. Um, I mean, and then after that, it says distinctive behaviors. Well, let's answer that first. Well, distinctive behaviors, it goes underground. It, it sleeps underground, nocturnal. It is a vegetarian? It eat, well, it eats a seed-based only diet. It uh, makes burrows, burrows in the soil. Soil and sand. Presumably, it would also live in groups, like um, sets, I think. But then going back to traits, I think uh, I think the key, the, the big one really, is, um, is going to be the horns, right? Uh, sheds horns. Fragile. Uh, presumably small. Quick, I'm guessing, because we've seen quick tracks everywhere. And then finally, it just says notes. Um, very little evidence of them, really. All we know is that their numbers have declined, I think. Oh, and it squeaks, I'm guessing. If we're going through that haiku, I think the only other bit of information is that it squeaks. Quite a bit distinctive squeak. Oh, or squawk, as I've put there. Alright, that's the fact file done. Day 13. What is a sparrow's melody? Okay, so we have a letter here from a Julia Lee, a fact checker for a documentary crew that Dr. Lee was on. Dear Dr. Lee, by way of introduction, my name is Julia Sun Yin Lee. No relation, I'm sure. No, really, I'm sure. I got a genealogy tree going back 17 generations. I'm detail-oriented, which is why Mr. Johnson hired me. 
I've only been working here going on six weeks, so I wasn't on the boat with you and Mr Johnson and the rest of the team. As such, I'm able to act as an impartial fact-checker. I just need you to review the below items and confirm they did happen as described. These accounts are in addition to the recorded footage and are from Mr Luke Johnson, executive producer, Lucy Jimenez, camera operator, Lisa Zurea, sound engineer, Grace Pack, remote submersible operator, and Ralston Rowe, captain of the Laguna. On the 15th of February, 1999, can you confirm that you told Captain Rower that Johnson has no idea what he's doing and this is one massive snipe hunt, but untold tales of the deep is paying me enough that I could buy this boat three times over. On the 15th of February, 1999, can you confirm you told Lucy Jimenez, camera operator, that Luke Johnson, executive producer, was hot in a late Marlon Brando kind of way? You know, the way you'd want Dr. Monroe to take you to his private island. Oh dear. On the 16th of February, 1999, did you use the satellite telephone to search for videos of blue whale defecation patterns, thereby using up the entirety of the data plan for the trip, making it then impossible for the crew to email their families or to reach the production company to coordinate further logistical details? On the 20th of February, 1999, can you confirm you moved the crate of rum Mr Johnson acquired for the crew from the galley, and can you further confirm that over the rest of the trip you drank all but one bottle, which Lisa Zurea, sound engineer, had taken to the cabin she shared with Lucy Jimenez on the 14th of Feb 1999? On the 22nd of February 1999, can you confirm that you tried to bribe Grace Pack, remote submersible operator, to let you drive the remote operated submersible with the last bottle of rum, which you had taken from Miss Zurea's and Miss Jimenez's cabin without their knowledge? On the 23rd of February 1999, can you confirm that you threatened to have Grace fired from her role at the International Centre for Ocean Studies immediately on her return to shore if she did not let you pilot the submersible? On the 23rd of February 1999, after you caused the remote submersible to become entangled in the kelp forest, did you then tell Mr Johnson that this search was based on, in quotation marks, quack science, and did you then make duck noises at Mr Johnson throughout the rest of the afternoon? On the 23rd of February, 1999, did you stand outside the door of Mr. Johnson's cabin and shout that he could, quoting straight here, go fuck himself because I certainly won't anymore? On the 1st of March, 1999, did you tell Captain Rowe that you crashed the submersible because you thought one of the kelp strands was, in fact, the giant salt eel and panicked? On the 1st of March, 1999, did you tell Grace Pack that you were, quoting here, sorry that you were such a bitch to her? And did you promise to recommend Grace Pack for a fellowship with your own research institute? On the 1st of March 1999, did you, at 2am, attempt to send an email via the now inoperable satellite phone claiming that the giant salt eel was indeed real and you wanted to mount an independent expedition to find it? On the 3rd of March 1999, did you throw the empty crate of rum into the ocean and loudly make disparaging remarks comparing Mr Johnson's genitalia to the reports of the size of the giant salt eel? On the 5th of March 1999, can you confirm that you attempted to send an email to a Hannah Diaz with the subject line, I'm sorry and I miss you? Can you confirm that from the 3rd to the 6th of March that you did not leave your cabin until the crew disembarked at the port of Oakland in Oakland, California. Thank you so much for your cooperation, Dr. Lee. I'm such a huge fan of your work, and I think people are really going to enjoy this episode of Untold Tales of the Deep. 
You are such a brilliant scientist, and to think that you actually think the giant salt eel is not only real, but that you saw it during this exploratory venture. Mr. Johnson hasn't said anything, but I hope there will be a sequel episode and that maybe I could meet you in person. I'm sorry, I don't mean to gush. I hope you're doing well and I'm so excited to hear more news and updates from your search for the pronged horn desert rat. You can't see it, but I'm making the horn sign with my hands right now. Please return this form to me by June 13th. Failure to do so will mean that we will be forced to include a title card that reads Dr. Lee refused to respond to reports of their behaviour on the expedition. Sincerely, Julia Lee. No relation. Production assistant, Untold Tales of the Deep. Wow. Wow. That is interesting. Uh, I have seen Dr. Lee in a new light now. Um, I've got to be honest. <laughs> so underneath this letter, there is a picture, a screenshot, a YouTube screenshot, sorry, of um, Untold Tales of the Deep, the documentary that Julia Lee was fact-checking for. And at the top, it says, the text on the screen reads, Dr. Lee refused to respond to reports of their behaviour on the expedition. Oh, dear. This is, this is really bad, though. Like, I'm actually kind of shocked by this sort of behaviour. Like, not only was she dismissive of this guy, like, very unprofessional in front of her crew. I didn't imagine that, considering, like, how she was with, with me and when we were graduating and stuff. But maybe that... Oh, it's a real fine line, isn't it, between being friends with someone and then being inappropriate. Oof, oh, oh. That, that is like a whole can of worms, isn't it? Midweek, the tide of correspondence has no sign of ebbing. Today's mail included a fact-checking letter sent for a show about a cryptid-seeking expedition Dr. Lee had been on decades ago. That particular show was a topic that not many people dared to bring up around her. Uh, just a side note here, it's really interesting because obviously in the news just now there's been lots of things coming about, out about celebrities or people that we've looked up to, certainly in the worlds of film, who have acted inappropriately, you know, decades ago, you know, on, on the set of shows and stuff. And it's kind of jarring to think that someone I'm very close to acted like this. I'd say really unprofessionally. Like, I again, I don't know this Luke Johnson at all, obviously, and I don't know any of the other people on the trip. And I know it's one-sided, and I know it could easily be, like, swayed and manipulated, but, I mean, Dr. Lee does not look good in this light, so I'm a bit, ugh, about that. Really, like... Yeah, mm, don't like that at all. You remember the sympathy in Melanie Sparrow's response to you, and recall that she is primarily responsible for organising the chaotic jumble of Dr Lee's office. Of all the people at the Institute, she seems like someone who might be able not only to understand your position, but possibly have a system in place for categorising a flood of information. In the correspondence section of your journal, write a quick 30-word email addressed to Melanie Sparrow Junior Archivist at the Institute for Theoretical Evolutions. Alright, so nice and short and simple, I've said, Dear Melanie, hope this email finds you well. As you may be aware, I am helping with the Little Citizen Scientist Club's call to action in preserving Dr Lee's work. I was hoping I could pick your brains about how to catalogue and process the information I have been receiving. Happy to do a quick call about it, my number is below. Let me know. Amy Parker, Wildlife Educator, Cryptid Research and Rehabilitation Hub, London Zoo. Nice, short, simple. And send. The reply arrives in seconds. 
The subject line reads, Delivery status notification failure. And the message is so short, you can read the entire thing in the preview settings of your inbox. Your message was not delivered to msparrow at iftevolutions.org because the address could not be found. When you scan the Institute's website, Melanie Sparrow's name and contact information are no longer there. You make a broader search and find the following. So tweets include, wow, 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 turns out when an institution wants to shut you up all of a sudden, your NDA is the most important thing. Just saying that if maybe a lot of people want something and there's an upswell in citizen science because of a particularly rad member of your institution and she's declared dead and people want access to her work, maybe excuses like her office is very messy is not good. Also, yes, her office is very messy, but also this is our job and we do it well. I didn't go into debt to be an archivist to be unable to, like, sort paper even if I have to sometimes move a weird skull. Correction, this was my job, lol. Looking for work. If anyone needs an archivist, hit me up. The tweets about the Institute disappear almost immediately after you see them. You look for Melanie's handle elsewhere, but searching for sparrows underscore Melanie only brings up birding videos of various types of sparrow calls, and a specific user search comes up empty. Did the Institute's NDA include personal activity? Could their employment contract with Melanie have forced her to take down her account? Why is the Institute acting like they have something to hide? Find a video of a sparrow call on the internet, on YouTube or any other video platform and choose one you like that has a looped option for at least half an hour long. Let it play in the background as you answer the next question. In the field notes section of your journal, write your best guesses of what you think the following types of bird call mean in just a few words. Song. Uh, mean? What do they mean? I guess it's like it's just saying hello. I guess right. Oh, I guess it's okay. So I guess what would it translate to if it was like put through like a like a, an English translator? So a song in general. If it's just a song, so if it's just tweeting and just all around about. Um, I've just put like hello, good morning, great day, which. <laughs> It sounds so silly, but I like that idea that they're all always saying good morning to each other. So like, um, hello, hi there, hello. But then you've got something called contact calls, and I assume that is like, well, I don't know, I think that's more, um, are you here? Hello, are you here? Where are you? Yeah, I'll, I'll put that down. Next one after that is territorial aggression calls. Uh, well, again, it's like, sod off, get away. F off, <laughs> like, not here, go away, my spot. Yeah, I think that'd be like, F off, my spot. And then it says juvenile begging, which I can only translate that to like, I'm hungry over and over again. I'm hungry, hungry, hungry. And then the final one is alarm calls. So I guess it's like, get out, get out, get out. <laughs> like, um, get away, get away. Danger, danger, danger. Danger, Rob Robinson, etc. So we'll do that. Uh, danger. Danger here. Once you've written your best guesses, flip to the diary section of your journal. Recall a time you realised that someone had been keeping a secret from you. What did they do to keep the truth from you? Why do you think they acted like this? And how did their decision impact on you? Well, this is interesting because now there's been this reveal of Dr. Lee's like inappropriateness behaviour on a professional trip. 
it's going to remind me of, well, Harinda Paul. We spoke earlier about Harry's deception, going for another job, not believing in the dream anymore after a year. And obviously they got the job and didn't tell me. and Well, didn't tell me at all they were going for a different job. So what did they do to keep the truth from you? And they just kept quiet, they didn't say anything. I didn't really know anything was wrong until I came in one morning and they packed their bit of the um, the desk up. Why do you think they acted the way they did? Well, why does anyone act this way? It's to avoid that horrid awkwardness. Weirdly, it's one of those things where you know if you just said it, it'll be fine. But Harry didn't. And it's that sort of thing where he didn't know how to respond. This is obviously me making assuming things about Harry. It may not be true, obviously. Um, but they decided not to tell me because they didn't want to upset me, you know, because obviously I believed in the project. And they didn't want to let me down. I would have been amenable to it. Like, it's one of those things where you'd wish people just say stuff straight away, even though it's so hard to do. So much energy and, and time and, and effort and emotion does not get jumbled up and left behind and confused if you just tell people you know that something's up and yeah uh you didn't do it deliberately I, it's one of those things where you just see the right moment to tell someone and then it's too late that moment passes and you're like oh god oh god oh god and you just think actually i won't say anything even though the longer you hold it in the more and more it builds until it's too late and then in your head and maybe Harry thought this too. Actually, you turn it around on yourself and you're like, actually, I deserve your holding me back, blah, 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 blah. And that leads on to the final bit there. It's how did the decision impact you? Well, I was proper devastated. You know, like, they left me to go to this other job at, I think it was Chester Zoo, without talking to me about it, you know. And when, especially when we set up this this hub together, it feels like, a betrayal. It's hard, right? And I'm sure I would have spiralled for a little bit. A couple of days afterwards, maybe called in sick, closed the hub for a little bit. It's like, what the, what the hell do you do? When someone you rely on, someone to support you and encourage you to do stuff, you know, an equal partner in something, especially when it's a team project or something like that, it's, it's the thing that keeps you going is that somebody else is there experiencing it and then they kind of say they don't want to do it anymore and just cut you off completely because it helps them to do that and they feel safe to do that but then you kind of like leaves you in it in the sort of dust and it hurts it really hurts how do you pull yourself out of there i don't know how i do it anyway so best of luck to her in the pool and then kept a brave face until he left and then I had a massive cry. <laughs> uh, went home, shut the shut the hub down for a few days, said took some leave. Allowed myself to be sad. I've not made the effort, and neither has he, to talk about it or to say hello. It's that sort of thing where maybe the moment has passed where I could have reached out the olive branch. And maybe I'm too scared to do that for fear of being hurt again. 
Day 14. Some people live a bigger life. You're catching up to your replies. Most of the various pieces of contact don't necessitate it, but a letter or some other correspondence might contain something you can use to bolster your case to continue funding and support for Dr Lee's research. And you'll have to write to the sender to ask if you, specifically, have their permission to use it in totality for your purposes. Some of the letters are quite personal, too specific and emotional for you to write a form response for, and the process of responding to everyone is laborious and time-consuming. In front of you, Dr Hannah Diaz's latest note, and its accompanying letter to Dr Lee from their youth, waits for your response. In the correspondence section of your journal, write a short note to Dr Diaz to thank her for her help with your project, no more than 100 words. Include a short personal memory of Dr Lee you think might comfort her. I've gone for a little bit more personal, but we'll see. Dear Dr Diaz, thank you for this and all your help with the project so far. I appreciate every correspondence you send across and can only imagine how you might be feeling just now. Dr Lee was always incredibly passionate with her work and her passion comes across in your letters. I remember my graduation when she came with us to the Bigfoot Burlesque and her effortlessly switching between talking about the Dipotamus Ancylocapra and other topics we were interested in so quickly, but always so knowledgeable and so enthusiastic, always leaving room for you to join in and appreciate. Thanks again, Amy. Yeah, I thought we'd go sort of a little bit personal, no need for the full title on my end. I still feel awful about yesterday, though, about hearing about her behaviour. I'm trying not to let it shine through because I obviously have these memories of Dr. Lee and I don't want them to be um, sad. Rifling further through your now daily thick sheaf of mail, you find an overnight priority mail envelope addressed to one Michael Stinson. There is a handwritten note under the university address label, written in permanent marker, open immediately in capitals. Does this name ring a bell? You can look back through, see if you find any mentions of Professor Stinton. I do know who this is, I think. This is the person Hannah Diaz was talking about. I seem to remember he was very, um, in my head, boring. Like, he he was very interested in Dr Lee's work, but Hannah found him boring. And he's the same age as Hannah. But he's a professor, now that is interesting. I think that's who it is. So, we'll see. Okay. Oh, oh dear. So the little letter says, a letter from Michael Stinson, a rival of Dr. Lee. Let's look at the full transcript. <sighs> oh, I already I do not like this guy. The, the introduction makes me feel a bit cross. Okay. Greetings. When that youth hobby science club that Miss Lee, oh, Miss Lee, helped organise put out their call to publicise her life's work, I reached out to them and a very earnest girl named Olivia told me to contact you and gave me your PO Box number and address. I am reaching out to you with a vital piece of research that I think may aid you in your attempt to reopen Elizabeth Lee's work to the public. This is a difficult letter to write and I'm not certain why I'm doing so. I was a graduate student in 1996 at Beacon Hill University and attended a year-long fellowship at the McLellan White Foundation in Maine. Of course, can I just stop for a second? Of course, this person, I am presuming a man, is talking about themselves. <laughs> okay, whatever. All he had to say was that he was on a year-long fellowship. There, one of my cohorts was Hannah Diaz, and through her, I met Elizabeth Lee. 
I hate the fact he's not using their titles. She visited Hannah on campus several times during our fellowship. Her eyes always seemed to pass over me as though I was just another tree she was scanning. She had a constant distracted way of looking at the landscape around her before looking at you, even when you were conversing. Even before my jealousy took on its professional overtones, I felt small standing next to her. Some people just live bigger lives. I suppose that some people are themselves larger in the presence of those people, but I was never one of them. Hannah and I became close within the first few months of our fellowship. Okay, bullshit. I'm calling bullshit on that. I became something of a confidant to her. It was in that capacity I learned of Hannah's romantic involvement with Miss Lee, and it was in that capacity that my jealousy began again. When Hannah came to me after learning Miss Lee had been unfaithful to her, I think something calcified inside me. I began to obsessively trail Miss Lee's work and publish many papers whose sole purpose was to bring down the credibility of her name. Don't like this at all. Don't like where this is heading, Michael. It didn't work. Whilst I did manage to land a teaching position and tenure track due to the number of my publications, I felt my life was shrinking around me. My old hopes to rekindle my closeness with Hannah went cold within months after our fellowship ended, and I saw Miss Lee's name everywhere. It was when her work outside academia was at its height. Once you've won the love of the public, like Elizabeth Easley did, there is really nothing that can wound you. And that ate at me. I crave that armour for myself. In 2008, one of my articles gained a little traction. An old college friend of mine was the editor-in-chief at the Eastern Time magazine, one of the premier cultural maystays of the region, in case you weren't aware. Oh, gah, I hate him. And published my scathing criticism of university funding of theoretical evolution, which used Dr. Lee's failure to find any real sign of the Dipotamus ancilla capra as the main thrust of the piece. Let sleeping dragons lie, I think was the line that got quoted the most. A rare foray of mine into fanciful language. It did the trick. Dr. Lee failed to receive a crucial grant shortly after. And I believe one of the reasons she was spurned for the directorship at the Institute for Theoretical Evolutions was due to being mentioned by name in my piece. If she didn't know who I was before, she knew who I was after that. My God, this guy is awful. I really don't want to finish this letter, he's just been so fucking vindictive. About a month after my article was published in the ET, I received a letter at my office. A geocaching enthusiast said he read my article and found it compelling. In the envelope was a set of photographs, the same photographs I'm sending you, along with the coordinates of the geocache he placed their subject in. As far as I know, I am the only one to receive them. I no longer hold a copy. I do not want to. I'm sorry. I don't know if you need to know all of this. It's a sort of confessional and an indulgent one. When I learned of Miss Lee's disappearance, I felt as if I was responsible. Ugh. When she was declared dead, it felt pointless to still hold my irrational animosity towards her. All that is left is my guilt. If she had possession of what I sent you, and if I had done my due diligence as a peer instead of acting like a petulant child, she might be alive now. I don't know. I am very sorry. This is not an attempt at atonement. I hope, in whatever capacity I am useful now, I can at least make it up to you. Sincerely, Professor Michael Stinson, Department of Evolutionary Biology, Beacon Hill University. 
I just, I guess he is aware of it. I mean, he's blaming himself for something I don't think he is at fault for. People get criticised all the time for their work. But the fact he's admitted to this jealousy, professional jealousy, and I guess we're all, we all have it at time to time. I really hate how he, he doesn't, like, give her her title, though. Neither Hannah or Lee. That, that makes me cross. He does go on to later to describe her as Dr. Lee. But, yeah. I guess the whole point of this is that you're not supposed to like him at the beginning. And then he blames himself, but he has sent something to make up for it. It doesn't make up for it at all. Okay, so the person has sent pictures of, oh, it's little skulls. <gasps> it's little skulls, only as big as like, like your top three fingers. There's two pictures, there's pictures of like tiny skulls, one person's holding it in their hand on the skull. It looks like a small rat or maybe a rabbit skull with like big eye sockets. But more importantly, on the first picture, there are two horns on it, like just sticking out the top. Very, very small. Ah, oh. yeah, here we go. Two photographs featuring a small rat skull with horns. The first photo shows it being held in hand. It's about one to one and a half inches long. And the second photo shows it buried in the dirt. And there are other bones visible. You stare at the photographs. The condition of the skull is pristine. You're absolutely certain that this, finally, is the missing piece, the key that will unlock the Institute's coffers and allow you to take on Dr. Lee's work and integrate it into your own. Michael Stinson's letter lies before you on your desk. You sit down and read it again. Move to the diary section of your journal. There, recall someone from your adolescence or young adulthood for whom you felt deep, inconcilable jealousy. You did something out of that jealousy that impact them. Write a short letter that you will not send of no more than a hundred words explaining why you acted like you did and end with a sincere and meaningful apology for your past actions. I see what you've done there. Very good. Very, very good. I get it. Okay, well... Well... When you're a teenager, when you're an adolescent, you're constantly under peer pressure to be a certain way, to look a certain way, to be present. And I think Amy was jealous of another girl who got a lot of attention, primarily from men, um, call her Louisa. And Louisa was just perfect in every way. Your proper manic pixie dream girl. The way she could easily talk with people and be friendly and not put in a lot of effort for people to like her. People just liked her anyway. But she looked different in the sense of she had amazing dyed hair, short dyed hair, wore very stylish clothes. And as Amy, I was jealous of her. I had to work very hard, you know... I didn't fit in as much, or at least I didn't think I fit in. Obviously, looking back at it now, it's definitely anxiety. Oh, I'm not exactly this perfect thing, so I'll just hang back. Teenagers are cruel. And they'd probably have, like, graffiti or, or, or something like that. Obviously, that's probably not not here. But, like, I'm thinking, like, 
it would be an online forum where you could post things anonymously. And I think I would have written a really horrible thing about Louisa, saying how she's manipulative, how she gains friends, this, that and the other, how she takes things like it's all an act. Ridiculous things, stupid schoolyard things. I would have written it and posted it. The next day, whilst in class, Louisa would have come in late and everyone could see that she'd been crying a lot. And of course, it got reported, it got taken down and they investigated everyone. But because obviously it's anonymous and it was like early noughties, it was very hard to find who posted what. Louisa would have moved schools after that. Whether that's due to the blog post or not is, um, well, again, it's up for debate. I hadn't thought about it in many years now thinking of it, but I know it was jealousy out of fear rather than anything. She didn't do anything. I was the one at fault. Oh, I was a horrible teenager. Okay, I've written the following. I've written, well, it's not less than 100 words, but... It's, it's short, so. Dear Louisa, I was the one who wrote the blog post about you. I don't expect you to forgive me for it. In truth, I was jealous of you. How you were popular and looked amazing when I struggled to make even one friend out of crippling anxiety and fear. I was the loner who loved working and reading and you were the popular, happy-go-lucky person with a big friendship group who did stuff spontaneously. I was jealous of the attention you got and wanted some of that attention. And that's why I lashed out in the way I did. I am sorry. It was unacceptable. Women should not tear other women down like that. I know you will always be a better person than me because of it. I hope wherever you are, you are happy, safe, and living life to the fullest that you can. Regards, AIM. Day 15. Hashtag Pronghorn Ratlibs. Oh, so they've sent me a letter from a child. <laughs> Katerina, to Dr. Lee, and that's been forwarded to me, and it's decorated with drawings of bugs and snakes, and, well, I wouldn't call that a bug, i call that a rabbit of some sort. The text reads, Dear Dr. Lee, I am Katerina. I am six years old. I read your say in library. I like bugs and creatures too. I want to learn more about them, like you. Christians, how many creatures are there? What's your favourite one? How old are you? I am six. I hope to be a doctor like you one day. I think you are my hero. Love, Katerina. You're writing your seventh email to the Institute. The first six went unanswered over the past two weeks. 
You've turned on your red receipts to track their response and whoever's receiving your messages has opened every single one. Write your seventh letter to the Institute. Use 50 words at most in the correspondence section of your journal. End your thoughts mid-sentence. This is a letter that makes it clear you know they are deliberately stalling Dr. Lee's research. To whom it may concern, I am getting tired of this. I know you've read my previous emails asking for Dr. Lee's research. I know you're stalling. Dr. Lee's work should be celebrated and shared by all and not hidden behind red tape and archive requests. Quite frankly, I... You leave the letter unfinished. Six of your letters appealing to the Institute to open Dr. Lee's research to the public are sitting somewhere in someone's inbox. Maybe Bethany Smith's or Director Yang's. You know they've seen them and you know there's no point trying again. As you think about what your next steps might be, a memory comes to you. In the diary section of your journal, write a short memory from your early childhood of a time when you rebelled. No more than 50 words. Uh, okay. Um, I think as a kid, Amy or I was always into bugs. I mean, I've you know, always had this interest in biology, but I think we would have had a garden and seeing these creatures out there they were incredible and I wanted to look at them in more detail so I would catch worms and beetles and maybe the odd millipede or centipede and take them in and my parents would like oh gross get them out no you can't have these and take them out outside and I think I wouldn't have how can I put this I wouldn't have known it was cruel but I would then collect jars uh, probably not putting holes in because it says early childhood and I would collect these creatures so like uh, wood lice definitely a centipede or two or a worm put them in a glass jar or two and then put it under the bed so I could take it out and look at them at some point start sketching them or or see them how they look and it probably would have been about maybe ooh, three weeks later when my parents would have found well, 20, 25 jars of various bugs or insects dead <laughs> underneath the bed in various states of uh, decomposition as well. Not a nice sight. Once you've written the memory, go to the field notes section of your journal. Write every single thing you have learned about the pronged horn desert rat, the fact sheet you compiled earlier, any theories you came up with about its habits, the information from Dr. Stinson's letter, and anything else you might think pertinent to the body of research compiled to date. Then, take a photograph of it. Alright, so I'm not going to take a photograph of it because a lot of it is audio-based, but let's think about this. So we know that the pronged horned desert rat uh, lives in desert-like regions in the southwest coast of America. What have we got so far? If I look back through the notes, we have... So yeah... Its habitat is hot, dry deserts, and it normally lives underground. It's definitely nocturnal, and we know it can live without water because it mostly has a seed-based diet. And yeah, southwest coast of America, so we're thinking Nevada, New Mexico, California, and Arizona. That's the places where we've seen it in those particular states. Obviously, it always comes back to this. We know the scientific name is Dipotamus ancylocapra. Um, 
It's related to all different kinds of desert rat in general. What makes it stand out from the other desert rats is that it's small. It has horns, which are quite small as well. They're like maybe less than an inch. We know that these horns, or we think these horns are brittle and fragile, like fingernails I've put down here. Ugh. Fingernails? I think fingernails are quite hard, actually, but okay. Um, we know they're quite small and it has a distinctive squeak. Like I said, seed-based diet, like it's burrowing in soil and sand. So we might have a warren or two underneath and like have a system of tunnels that it likes to hide in. Probably comes in groups or family sets. Um, what else is there to say? Oh, uh, predators. Predators is the big one. Everyone that we've spoken to indicates some kind of predator of some sort. So whether it's birds of some sort, or so hawks or owls. We've got snakes, uh, weasels, bobcats and coyotes. So we've got a whole lot of things going on here. My assumption is that we oh, we also know that the Californian desert rat, uh, their numbers are declining. So it makes sense that that the Dipotamus ancillacapra uh, numbers are also declining as well. Maybe because uh, the increase in predator numbers, maybe there's more, uh, maybe humans are destroying the uh, habitats perhaps. So yeah, there's a lot of stuff happening here. So it's good, good to know. It takes very little time to upload the scans of the correspondence and evidence you put together to everywhere on the internet you can think of posting to. You quickly create a social media account using the same handle and write a short post along with the hashtags, a little tongue in cheek, hashtag pronghorn rat lives, hashtag Dr. Lee legacy and hashtag field guide to memory. After the upload, you add a comment to your post an invitation to others to reply with anything they might have to prove the existence of the Dipotamus ancillacapra as well. You are tired of waiting. In the correspondence section of your journal, write a quick message inviting anyone with information about Dipotamus ancillacapra to upload their findings as well, using no more than 256 characters, so essentially a tweet. Okay, uh, let me write this. So, the tweet is going to be as follows. My name is Amy Parker of London Zoom Cryptid Research and Rehab Hub. I've put all my findings for the D. Ancilla Capra here for all to access. Please reply to this thread with any findings you have. Hashtag pronghorned rat lives. Hashtag Dr. Lee legacy. Hashtag field guide to memory. What else will Amy Parker uncover about Dr. Lee and her rich yet complex legacy? Is she still alive? And is the Dipotamus antilocapra, aka the pronged horned desert rat, real? Find out next time on What Am I Rolling? The What Am I Rolling podcast was created, recorded, and edited by me, Fiona Howard. This episode's player was Fiona Howard. This episode's RPG was Field Guide to Memory, a connected path game about legacy, wonder, cryptids, and the vastness of a human life, designed by Yeon Shim and Xingying Kuo. You can find out more information about Field Guide to Memory and get your own copy on itch.io. The theme music was 8-Bit March by Twin Musicon. 
of twinmusicon.org, licensed under a Creative Commons 4.0 license. If you want to find out more about the podcast, check out the website. That's www.wairpodcast.com. Fancy getting in touch? Email the podcast at whatamirollingpodcast at gmail.com. Finally, follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at wair underscore podcast for latest news on upcoming episodes. And remember, adventurers need not apply.